Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 63 of... Round the Archives. So what have we been doing in the in the meantime since episode 62? Oh, I don't know. What have we been doing? Remind uh, me. Well, podcasting-wise, we've been on quite a few episodes of Vision on Sound. Yes. Uh, the Shy Life podcast. Yes. And we've even done our third appearance on Tim Worthington's Looks Unfamiliar. We have. And, and a secret project, which we cannot and, announce and, at the And moment. we have recorded another thing, which probably won't be out for months, will yes, it? Yes, no. But, yes. Stum on that front mm-hmm. for the moment. But, to kick off, mm-hmm. Martin Holmes is going to look at... Red Cap. <laughs> lifetime ago I used to work in an office and one of my colleagues was a huge fan of the then current, so you can tell how long ago it was, television series Inspector Morse. Whenever a new series was either announced or actually being shown he'd come in all giddy with anticipation and explain to me that he thought I'd really enjoy the next episode given what he'd heard the theme of it was or share with me just how great he thought a particular scene in the previous night's edition had been. You know, the usual water-cooler chit-chat about telly. Of course, the nature of offices is that they always contain something of a cross-section of society, all randomly selected and then forced to work together for the purpose of paying their bills and living their lives. Because of this, there was another colleague working there, a particularly opinionated type who liked to share his thoughts, who made a great point of regularly telling us that he couldn't bear watching Morse because, whilst he quite liked John Thor as an actor, he couldn't stand him talking in that posh voice he was using, and he much preferred it when he used his normal voice like he had in the Sweeney. Oh, how I wish I'd had access to the series Red Cap back then to show him what nonsense he was talking in that Mancunian accent he had, which was, ironically, not unlike John Thor's own native tones. This was during the late 1980s, of course, so episodes of obscure classic TV series were still difficult to access. An entire series of long-forgotten black-and-white television series from the ancient past of over 20 years earlier were about as likely to be released on VHS as I was at making a huge success of that job I was doing, and certainly, even if they were, they would probably be well outside my price range. Nowadays, of course, you can pick up entire series of the most unexpected shows on shiny discs for about the same price as we paid for a single tape containing two episodes back then, so that's progress for you. But watching Red Cap might have shown him that it was Jack Regan that was the exception in John Thor's career at that time, and Morse was more of a return to the type of character he'd been playing on television way back at the start of his career, when he was picked as the lead actor for Red Cap, when still, astonishingly enough, in his early 20s. 
Because when you watch Red Cap, there are genuine moments when the voice, the mannerisms, and the significant looks and pauses that feature in John Thor's performance make you believe that you're actually watching a young Endeavour Morse rather than Sergeant John Mann in action, despite the best efforts of Sean Evans over this past decade. Red Cap is a series featuring the activities of the Special Investigation Branch of the British Army who investigate crimes committed by and upon British soldiers and the various camps, barracks and bases that they serve in and around, presumably made at a time when television producers were looking around for new takes on the police procedural to fill the schedules and it would be a programme idea that would be returned to for another two-series 13-episode run of the similarly titled Red Cap starring Tamsin Uthwaite in 2003. The 1960s version was created by Jack Bell and developed by Richard Harrison and produced by the prolific 1960s television producer John Bryce, whose work most noticeably included both The Avengers and Public Eye. And the series was script edited by Ian Kennedy Martin, who was reunited with John Thor on The Sweeney about 10 years later. So there are some of independent television's heaviest hitters involved in this production. The red cap of the title refers to the hats worn by military policemen, although perhaps due to his attachment to the SIB, John Thor's character John Mann rarely seems to wear his, and is more often than not seen wearing the civilian dark suit and tie for many of his investigations, although he does tend to get his uniform on whenever he's sent to somewhere exotic, or is on more official business, but obviously, given that the series was made in black and white, the specific redness of the cap he is wearing is rarely noticeable. Given that the British Army was pretty much an all-male service back in those days, it's a series that features a lot of men in stories about men and not all that many women. And when women do turn up, they are usually there as the wives and girlfriends in orbit around the story of the week, or to be seen as the source of trouble that might have been claimed to have been the reason that the particular story of the week was occurring. Let's be honest, there are several young ladies working in nightclubs seen across the episodes, although I ought to give special mention to Diana Coupland, who features in episode 4, Mistfire, who gives a very sympathetic portrayal of a much misunderstood older woman who has fallen for a young soldier despite much resistance to this relationship from both his platoon and his family. In general, though, these are hard-hitting stories and they seldom pull any punches. Stories of accusations of rape, blackmail, black market activity, racial abuse, robbery, gun running, soldiers going absent without leave, drunken behaviour, murder, suicide, bullying, fraud and embezzlement all play out in various military environments and we are left in little doubt as to the inevitable outcomes whenever a group of bored young men who have been trained to kill are forced to spend time confined in places where they are often neither wanted nor liked for prolonged periods of time. You know, all the kinds of unpleasant stories about our brave boys that these days would have the daily newspapers frothing at the presses as being somehow not in the national interest to be talked about on national television. And yet these stories were important and needed to be told, even if it was essentially for entertainment purposes. I still have a copy of the snotty official reply my father received during the war after he raised the issue of a serviceman who had died after an incident that took place in his barracks, which basically told him to shut up and go away as his betters were dealing with it, and that sort of attitude is still very evident in several of the stories being told in this series. This programme was all made in an era that we seem to have largely forgotten about when the British Army was stationed in outposts all around the world in a much more prominent way than it is nowadays. And so it actually turns out to be quite globe-trotting in its scope, even if all of those strange foreign lands are being recreated in studios in the heart of 1960s London. And the guest cast features an extraordinary list of character actors and future stars, often looking very young indeed, and many of whom you will recognise from doing the rounds of all the other shows from that era. But some of them are really surprising to see, and often they are caked in the sweat and grime that only such environments could possibly create. For archive television buffs who enjoy such connections, 
There's also a rare appearance of Blue Peter's John Noakes in an acting role in an early episode, Epitaph for a Sweat. And John Thor encounters at least two of his future television bosses, Garfield Morgan, who plays Haskins in The Sweeney, and James Grout, who played Superintendent Strange in Morse, during the run of the series. Red Cap was made by ABC Weekend Television and was broadcast over two series consisting of 13 episodes each, in 1964 and another in 1966, and perhaps surprisingly for the ABC archive, quite a lot of it has actually survived. Of the 26 made, only three, The Moneylenders, An Ambush Among Friends and Strictly By The Book, are missing, and part of that last one does exist albeit in the form of 12 minutes of a surviving engineer's test reel of studio footage that does give the fascinated TV fan a slight insight into ABC studio production in the mid-1960s. All of the lost episodes are from the second run, so the first series, which ran from the middle of October 1964 through to mid-January 1965, exists in its entirety. I will admit that I struggled with Red Cap at first. I took delivery of the set, watched an episode, set it aside and forgot about it for a couple of years, thinking that perhaps it was too grim or too gritty or too blokey for me and that I hadn't really particularly liked it. And when there are so many other shows to discover, I kept putting off returning to it. However, one morning I picked it up again and decided to give it another go. And once I sat and watched episode two... I thought I could quite happily carry on with it, and having watched the third and the fourth, I ended up rattling through the entire box set in less than a fortnight. I think perhaps it just takes a while to adapt to the visual vocabulary and style of a show, and perhaps I'd just been watching too many slicker series shot on film in the run-up to watching Red Cap, because this is very much a studio-based series shot on videotape in the multi-camera studio technique with location film inserts, very similar to, and familiar from, shows like Callan and Public Eye and as such rewards the viewer with solid and stupendous acting performances that can sometimes be diminished by one or two gaffes on the technical side. Anyway, one of the episodes that particularly stood out for me in that speedy run-through was the final episode of the first series, The Patrol, in which the producers try to recreate the jungles of Borneo in a TV studio, and they do largely succeed spectacularly well in achieving this. Written by Troy Kennedy Martin and directed by Guy Verney, this stiflingly hot and surprisingly claustrophobic tale was first broadcast in the middle of a British winter on the 16th of January 1965, which, to give it some context, means that it appeared on the same night as the opening episode of the William Hartnell Doctor Who serial The Romans, also set in far warmer climes. It must have been in reaction to the typical British winter, I suppose. The British Army were in Borneo during those years as part of the combined Commonwealth forces attempting to put down Indonesian opposition to the creation of Malaysia, which meant that this was another country where British soldiers ended up serving, as they did all over the world back then, and obviously provided a different backdrop for this series to present for its tales set on the darker side of army life, which more often than not took place in bland army camps in the UK and Germany, or other glamorous hotspots like Cyprus and Aden. As the episode begins, and because I've seen it so often in another context over the years, whenever I see or hear it, I do usually expect the ABC logo and its accompanying jingle to be immediately followed by the fanfare from the early series of The Avengers, so the opening credits of Red Cap do always come as a bit of a surprise, featuring a theme made up of mostly staccato rhythmic drum beats, backing up the slightly pop art randomness of the strangely neutral title sequence that features generic military photographs, but none of the star of the show. This is naturally changed for the second series, which does feature pictures of John Thor in character and uses an altogether more stylised graphic design style. 
In an extraordinary piece of production design that is credited to Kenneth Meller, the studio jungle created for this episode, which even includes a babbling brook and a patch of quicksand, is astonishingly effective right from the off. You can almost imagine it being created as one huge clump of a set in the middle of the studio, with the cameras circling and creeping around it like prowling jungle creatures, occasionally catching glimpses of our plucky band of actors as their faces appear in gaps in the wild undergrowth. Very rarely does it feel anything other than totally real, apart from the odd glow of a lamp that might be interpreted as a glimpse of the broiling sun and one moment where a flat floor creeps into shot. This might be the nature of black and white television being able to fill in the design shortcomings, but it's probably more down to the absolute utter conviction the grimy, sweaty actors show in persuading us that they are indeed in this hot, humid, sticky and quite frankly horrible confined space of a jungle. And what actors they are. Major Fraser is played with the sort of eccentric fruity relish that Graham Crowden seems to manage so effortlessly. And his civilian Australian guide John Bell, another John for us to keep track of, matches him moment for moment in a surprising piece of casting that seems atypical of the usual stuff you see featuring Robin Bailey. In this tight, almost theatrical feeling piece, the small cast of eight also features future Dr Watson David Burke as Private Burroughs, Ronald Curram as Lance Corporal Gentry, Ewan Hooper as Sergeant Job, and Anthony Colby as Private Fox, with Faye Bakar on silent, prowling duties as the Indonesian soldier, or, if you prefer, as credited, the terrorist. These are all fabulous performances that never let up for a moment, often played in extreme close-up, and never once feeling like they are a parody or a send-up. With the help of a few clips of stock footage and some light and shadow effects coupled with the kind of noise intended to drown out much of the dialogue, a helicopter is very effectively recreated in the studio and our hero, Sergeant John Mann, enters the story via a rope dropped in, presumably from the studio ceiling, and the basic rules of a murder mystery set in a confined space are about to unfold in the traditional three-act structure an hour-long drama on ITV with advertising breaks had back then. Because in this context, this wartime jungle full of traps and terrors and creatures and enemies that want to kill you is very much a confined space, and we have a limited number of suspects in the best tradition of Agatha Christie herself. There is also a huge influence of the stage play The Long and the Short and the Tall by Willis Hall to be seen in this script too, which is unsurprising given that the play and the film based upon it had both been very successful only a few years earlier, and in 1965, memories of army life would have been very vivid for so many of the television viewing audience. So, John Mann has flown out into the jungle, despite his lack of jungle training, to get three statements from the three soldiers who had given evidence in the murder trial of one Private Pike, which is a name to conjure with, although this was made far before Dad's army was even a glimmer of a possibility. Pike has appealed his conviction, and so it is with some urgency that Mann needs these statements, although his three witnesses are surprisingly unwilling to cooperate with him. Things, as they say, are afoot. The strange coincidences that have led to all three being sent out on this patrol are addressed within the script, all of which leads to an air of mystery and suspicion, and the shadow of doubt falls across every one of the characters over the course of this tense 50 minutes of intrigue. This has not been the happiest of patrols, we learn, in the incisive character moments that play out in the spaces between the trees and the patches of ground, with some excellent tour de force stuff, particularly from Crowden, as the eccentric Major Fraser, who never lets man or us forget the terrible danger that lurks in the shadows, as shown from time to time when we see sinister, i.e. foreign, eyes watching them from those very shadows. 
There's a genuine air of menace about the place, created by those performances, those ever-creeping cameras, the machetes shining in the darkness, gripped tightly in readiness just in case something horrible happens, and the soundtrack of jungle noises that continually shriek and scream to remind us all just what an alien, inhospitable and downright dangerous spot our hero is in. And John Thor is magnificent too, not least in showing his anger and frustration with these three witnesses who now refuse to cooperate to the point that they won't even sign statements confirming the truth of their previous statements. But also when he is playing a man who is obviously way out of his depth in that bloody jungle, realising that he might have bitten off more than he could chew, and is frankly terrified as he is seconded back into the normal duties of a soldier on patrol and desperately grasps onto his machine gun for dear life, spotting lights through the trees as an enemy soldier bursts into a clearing and a shot rings out. This segment also includes an excellently structured scene in which John Mann is being subtly cross-examined by the sinister Sergeant Job as they try to eat a terrible lunch made out of army rations, and his antagonistic relationship with assigned cook Lance Corporal Gentry is beautifully exposed. And whilst Major Fraser might be getting too old for these cat-and-mouse games, it is Private Fox, seeking some kind of redemption, who comes forward just before the first advert break to confess to Sergeant Mann that the evidence they gave was untrue, and this might now cast some doubt upon the entire case, which does at least give Mann the small satisfaction that he was right to be there. After the break, it is the following morning, and the jungle is lighter and slightly less threatening, as Graham Crowden shares a slightly arch moment with John Thor, and Robin Bailey gives off an air of grinning menace. But the camera is soon on the prowl again, and rightly so, as a small war breaks out in the studio with bangs and flashes and rockets and machine gun fire breaking out all over the place. With even John Thor getting in on the action in a way that the cerebral nature of his character, and the series up to that point, hadn't really had much opportunity for. This attack, taking place as it does so early in the second act, changes the balance of power within the patrol and the nature of the story itself, as it leaves Private Fox dead and Major Fraser wounded so that Ranking Sergeant Job sees an opportunity to take over command and sort out several of his problems once and for all. In another characterful moment, Major Fraser starts to wonder whether Sergeant Mann is something of a Jonah who has brought bad luck to this particular patrol, but Mann assures him that he can't appreciate the view, he's not used to being in action, and would quite happily leave as soon as they can summon up another helicopter to get him out of there. Although Major Fraser is having none of that sort of nonsense giving away the position of this apparently vital patrol, that Robin Bailey's character, John Bell, is also unwilling to waste. Anyway, it becomes apparent that because both of the Johns examine the body and both are pretty good at working these things out, the clustering of the bullets in his back proved that Private Fox was murdered by someone in the patrol. But it is in this middle section of the programme that we get some of the most phenomenally written scenes played out by this set of extraordinary actors playing the reality of it all with total commitment, which, given the circumstances of all the possible distractions they are performing against, is a truly remarkable thing for a weekly television crime drama, really, and just shows how great even the most ordinary of 1960s TV programmes could be. All of the supporting cast are given moments in which to shine. There's a lovely sinister moment in which, after Mann has asked him about Pike, Sergeant Job gets philosophical about the whole world being a jungle, really. And there's another scene in which Lance Corporal Gentry talks about guns and starts to reveal his underlying psychotic personality especially when Sergeant Mann explains that the coincidences that led to Gentry being there were no coincidences at all, but that Gentry had planned them in order to warn his mates that Mann was coming. Mann gets a derogatory sneer about being a copper for his deductive reasoning there, but it's not the first time that's happened. The standout scene, however, is left to David Burke as Private Burroughs, who, because he thinks that Fox had already confessed everything to Mann before he died, gets a long soliloquy 
to explain the circumstances about the eight men who shared a woman named Dorothea in Germany and the background to her murder that came because she wanted to be free of them all and marry a fat German businessman instead in a moment of casual racism that troubles us more now than it would have done those watching it at home in 1965. This is proper acting, performed by a master of the craft, and the world-building, touching as it does upon service in Kenya, Malaysia, Cyprus and Aden, and the ghastly arrangements made between those eight soldiers, including Fox, Gentry, Burroughs and Pike, about the woman, make for a truly shocking yet utterly brilliant few minutes of television. His downfall, it seems, is because of his fixation upon the bayonet that he used to kill the woman, whilst the convicted Pike, it transpires, killed the German boyfriend. And it is only when Sergeant Mann insists upon taking the bayonet off him, as evidence, that they have one of those gloriously staged studio fights, the like of which you really don't see anymore. After this, Mann attempts an arrest, but with Major Fraser's insistent assertion that this is a war operation, not a court of law, Private Burroughs is returned to duty, with his precious bayonet returned to him, because they all need to work together to keep all of them alive. And so, with that confession of guilt, you might think that our story is over until you realise that we've not reached the third act yet. And when the advert break does come, it's with the revelation that man, alongside the officers, are not four against two, but three against three, as he has worked out that it was Sergeant Job who killed Private Fox. After this revelation, once Act 3 begins, Sergeant Job is allowed to play it more sinister, as a tense power struggle ensues, with Job waiting for Fraser to collapse so that he can take over command. There's also some grisly foreshadowing as we learn that the enemy collect the ears of their victims, which leads to a disturbing moment after one of the characters dies and we see the enemy moving towards his dead body with a machete poised to strike. That sweaty, gritty, sometimes cynical, sometimes rather philosophical third act is quite masterfully compelling, despite the film of the surviving episode being decidedly scratchy. And as this tragedy plays out, and the three co-conspirators are divided by the actions of one of them, and by learning of the suicide in jail of Private Pike, this all leads to a dramatic conclusion and some bitter reflections that make even the redoubtable Sergeant Mann start to wonder about whether any of his efforts were worth doing, as Major Fraser reflects that the sort of trial-based justice Mann serves is actually bad for morale in the army, and whether a bad man can still be a good sergeant. With that, the episode and the first series ends, with the reach of the long arm of the law sort of vindicated, and justice of a sort being served for a misused woman in Germany, even though Major Fraser asserts who cares about who killed a tart in Germany. And we get one final close-up of that bleak and slightly bewildered with the ways of the world face that would serve John Thor terribly well when he was playing Inspector Morse several decades later, as he gratefully begins the climb up to that waiting helicopter out of hell. The Patrol is certainly not the most typical episode of Red Cap, although the fact that it is so different from the others does rather make it stand out from the rest, but that certainly doesn't mean that it's the best episode or the only one worth seeing, as the series overall is high quality, well written and excellently performed stuff, and features a whole host of those brilliant actors that we all recognise from those times, and I for one will admit that it very quickly, at least for a time, became my preferred viewing once that ABC ident had faded away and I fancied a bit of hard-hitting studio drama. Redcap, do give it a try, it's really worth seeing. Many thanks to Martin for that. Yes, thank you Martin, very interesting. 
Martin's show, Vision on Sound, has clocked up 100 episodes now. Over 100 episodes. Indeed, because mm-hmm. episode 101, he went on location. He did. To the Hooverville Convention. He did. And spoke to a whole host of guests, including he... no less than Fraser Hines. I know. Mm, yes. Impressive. So You should listen to it if you haven't so, already. So seek it out. Yes. But now, here's Michael Seeley talking about... Pathfinders in Space. Hello, my name is Michael Seeley, and I have in my hands my pet guinea pig, Hamlet. Say hello, Hamlet. Well, he's a little shy, actually. Now, the reason why I'm holding up Hamlet to the microphone is that this is a descendant of the actual Hamlet who appeared in all three Pathfinder serials. Pathfinders in Space, Pathfinders to Mars, and Pathfinders to Venus, and its precursor, the now-missing Target Luna. Alright, this probably isn't a direct descendant, and I'm amazed that the guinea pigs they used on the TV programme didn't die from fright the moment they were lugged about by whichever child actor's turn it was to uh, handle the poor things. And at one point it was down the pants of um, George Coloris. Well, not actually his pants inside his jacket. Uh, that's a plot point from the uh, the Mars one. I imagine the whole purpose of having the guinea pig was for all the young children at home to go, Aww, isn't it sweet? Now, we are back in the early years of the 1960s when the British launched rockets into space without too much trouble. On television, at least from something rather like the Quatermass British Rocket Group, and shared some of the music for its theme tune, actually. Trevor Duncan tracks, which you may recall closed each episode of Quatermass and the Pit. Well, here it is, looped endlessly, with some additional sound effects mixed in. And to be honest, it's bloody annoying. Just the same fanfare over and over again. This is children's television, ten years before my time, and I have to confess, right here and now, that I'm a little allergic to children's television. I don't hold too much nostalgia for programmes I watched as a kid, especially if they were specifically aimed at me, and especially if they featured children. When I began collecting and watching what used to be called Teddy Fantasy or Cult Television back in the 90s, I started with the greats like Doomwatch, Adam Adamant Lives, Blake Seven, Quatermass, all the grown-up stuff. Things I'd heard about but hadn't seen at the time. And then I tried a few episodes of Time Slip and thought, mm, no thanks, even though I wouldn't mind seeing it again actually now. But the problem was when I dipped into things like The Tomorrow People. And that was never again. Not the sort of thing I want to watch over and over again, like Doctor Who, which is a sort of superior child's programme, okay? I will occasionally watch what was promoted as children's television if I'm in a good mood, or if it sounds interesting. Like, for example, The Owl Service. That's rather good. Or I'll try and watch Sky, because it's Bob Baker and Dave Martin, and I'm thinking... Mm, you need a Terence Dix, really, don't you, to edit your work. Kids' drama always felt so much cheaper than the adult stuff, but, okay, more imaginative. So Pathfinders has been on my pile to watch for a few years, because it's often held up as a precursor for Doctor Who, because Sidney Newman was its producer at ABC Television. And it was a cliffhanging serial which looked forward to an exciting tomorrow of scientific exploration, and kept it reasonably sane and as accurate as you can be in 1960. Well, until we reach the Venus one. That's <laughs> completely, utterly bonkers. But more on that later. We are watching kids' television drama, and not a documentary about space travel. Which no one had done yet, save a couple of orbits around the planet, if even that, by 1960. Now, television from the distant past dates very, very badly, especially in how actors perform. 
But us discerning folk, who like our Doctor Who's, the more black and white the better, have become climatised to the restricted production techniques of its day. I remember in the 1980s watching a film on the TV with my dad, and the film was from the 1930s, I think it was a, a, a horror film like The Mummy or something like that, and he was just groaning at all the theatrical acting, the clunky staging and the sheer melodrama of it all. And this was his childhood he was watching. Target Luna, let's go back to the first one. That does not exist anymore. So we cannot see Michael Craze, good old Ben Jackson from Doctor Who, in an early role as the son of Professor Norman Wedgwood, who with his uh, brother Jimmy and sister Valerie go up in a rocket along with the guinea pig and a journalist played by Frank Finley. And they have some adventures up in space. And from what I can gather, they sort of pop down to the moon for a bit or round the moon. So let's start with Pathfinders in Space where the journalist Conray Henderson is now played by Gerald Flood, who's accompanying Professor Wedgwood and the recasted Jimmy, played by Michael Cray's lookalike Stuart Guidotti, who declaims every line as if it is of great import and drama, even if he's just asking for a cup of tea. And he must have had a sore throat by the end of the serials. The other children have also been recast, and Jimmy takes great delight in holding up Hamlet to show him whatever it is the rest of the cast are discussing. I'm sure Hamlet was taking notes and praying to his guinea god for deliverance from the choking hands of death. The rocket is very much of the Quatermass mode, and nothing like the later Apollo missions. Basic controls, a nice periscope, the G-force sends you to sleep, and rockets are very, very easy to steer, even for a journalist. So it isn't much of a problem for um, Henderson to achieve docking manoeuvres with another rocket, which appears to be in orbit around the moon. They land on the moon, and after a few narrow scrapes, discover that they are not the first visitors. Aliens? Well, not quite. And if you haven't seen the programme, I won't spoil the rather pleasant reveal and its stark message for mankind, which was just as well because the Cuban Missile Crisis was just round the corner. Things don't change much, do they? The actual design work on the moon is rather good, which is hardly surprising as this is ABC. Uh, there's the London division, I think, of the ITV network. And if you've ever watched the three videotaped series of The Avengers, which they made in their Teddington studios, the design work was absolutely first class and sumptuous in its detail. And it appears to be the same here, although the rocket has more of a submarine feel to it and it's quite bland. Don't you think so, Hamlet? I thought it was quite bland. But once you got onto the moon, and for a few of the episodes inside the moon, the design work is exemplary. It is a very confident production, and the model work wobbles from time to time, but at least they had the balls to show rockets in flight, and high shots of mission control, and that nice little radar thing moving round and round and round. And the moonscape is marvellous as well. It's a very enjoyable serial. They face death, suffocation, and all sorts of, all sorts of things that they stoically face with a good British stiff upper lip. And our journalist friend seems to be very fair and not looking for scandal. So it's hardly surprising that they almost immediately commissioned a sequel, this time Pathfinders to Mars. And here we start to see a little outside drama come into the comfortable lives of our Swiss family Robinson in space. For a start, there's a woman who isn't manning the radio back home. And she's allowed to come with them. An American, no less. Professor Mary Meadows. And in place of the daughter, we now have a smug little know-it-all niece called Margaret. And she joins her Uncle Henderson and Jeff, who brings along Hamlet in place of his little brother, who stays at home. Where is Professor Wedgwood? Why he hurt himself when there was an accident right at the top of the story, reminiscent of Quatermass 2, if you recall. But not so deadly. Sure, let the journalist take up the rocket instead. <laughs> it's confident television. Another trip to the moon, but what's this? They have a passenger, a journalist called Harcourt Brown, who's pretending to be another scientist. Ooh, he's sinister. You can tell that because he's bald, he has a moustache, and he's played by George Coloris. 
He is the mature adult character with a twist, which Sidney Newman wanted to see in Doctor Who when the series was being conceived. Well, I suppose the handsome younger male in Chesterton reflects the Henderson role here. What does Brown intend? Well, he has written books on life on other planets and believes he has been receiving radio messages from an advanced civilization based in Mars. So he hijacks a rocket and forces them to go there. He holds Margaret hostage in one part of the ship and their long journey takes 20 minutes of screen time, but a couple of weeks in their time, which I think is a rather quick voyage considering how long an expedition to Mars would really take. And there's always the hope, they reckon, of oxygen and ice being found on Mars which will allow them to go back home safely. Otherwise, there ain't going to be a third sequel, or treacle. And so we come to Mars, another nice design, but suffers from all the clamping around our cast has to do. And poor old Brown isn't prepared for what they don't discover on the Red Planet. No canals, just the odd ice storm, and after one sudden rainstorm, fungi awoken by the water begins to grow all over them. We humans are mainly composed of water, so they like that. The lichen in close-up is simply tubes of plastic being inflated. Thank heavens these prints have not been given the high-definition treatment like so much Doctor Who is given these days. And what was once left to our imagination is now something to snigger at, alas. But it's all good adventure, except Harcourt Brown is prepared to leave them all behind on Mars so that no one else has to discover that his theories of life have been crushed. What a nice chap. But hey, he comes through at the end. What's that, Hamlet? You'd like to have seen him left behind on Mars and die? Come on, that's hardly wholesome family entertainment. The last episode focuses mainly on their attempts to return to Earth safely and not plunge into the sun. And at the end of it, Harcourt Brown ponders, I wonder if I could find life on Venus, but how am I going to get there? Venus was rather topical because the Russians were sending a probe at the same time and the final episode of Mars transmitted the day when Earth and Venus were at their closest. Nice and topical. Oh, and after episode two went out, Armchair Theatre did a play called The Man Out There, which starred Patrick McGowan, and it still exists, and it is about the first astronaut in space and what he was like as a person. Pathfinders to Venus starts as soon as Mars ends, and this time there's an American astronaut in distress, and Brown tricks the crew and poor Hamlet to land on Venus and rescue the stranded astronaut. Well, he wasn't there. So that's how Arcourt Brown gets to Venus. Well, this story could have been written by Terry Nation. Venus not only has an atmosphere, but jungles with flesh-eating plants. The Hamlet nearly ends up in one, poor thing. And Hamlet comes face to face with a lizard. My word, he's getting lots of screen time. And there's lots of jabber-like rocks and caves, a range of mountains honeycombed with tunnels. Harcourt Brown believes here must be a civilization, And there is life. Strange creatures are lurking in the trees. And they are unveiled gradually during the course of the story. For example, we see a shadow in the woods, and then we see a hand coming out from underneath the hatch in the rocket. And there's a silhouette by the end of episode four. Now, the monster in question is played by an actor called Bob Bryan, and he was even interviewed by the press. Shades of how Nick Evans would be in 1964 when he played the Slither in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. These serials were very popular at the time, and Wikipedia will tell you how one of the episodes set on Mars was the second most watched episode on New Year's Day in 1961. But I imagine back then people still worked on New Year's Day. We meet a genuine humanoid Venusian, a little girl they call Kiki. She does not speak English, just has her own language which they try to interpret. She is given dark makeup, which vanishes in one episode, and this was done on purpose. Deliberate mistakes were being seeded throughout one episode, and the reactions of children watching the episode were being studied for a survey conducted by Cambridge University. And apparently, the survey noted that the kids spent most of the time talking to each other rather than watch the episode, which they probably wouldn't do at home because there wouldn't be so many other kids close at hand. 
I remember doing more talking than watching and following dramas as a youth when I was around a friend's house, for example. And when there was a group of us, well, forget it. <laughs> this report Sidney Newman took with him to the BBC and gave to Verity Lambert when she was ensconced as Doctor Who's full-time producer. And she talks about that in Jeremy Bentham's book The Early Years, 1986. Now, Malcolm Hulk and Eric Pace wrote the serials, and they featured the sort of things that Sidney Newman loved to have in his dramas, which was heroes demonstrating the use of reason, uh, the odd lecture in something scientific, and lots of physical adventure. At one point in the Venus serial, they must have nicked a bit of film from one million years BC, because it's a fight between a Tyrannosaurus Rex and a Triceratops, or something as small. Now, Malcolm Holt did try his hand at an early Doctor Who, but it did not work out. And there was another name for the last serial, Ivan Rowe, who gets a credit as script associate. He has very few television credits, but um, he wrote science fiction books under the name Richard Savage. Venus is longer than the other serials at eight episodes, and we meet an American, and we even meet a nice friendly Russian right at the end. And Harcourt Brown decides to stay behind on Venus rather than go back to Earth, rather than face justice. But Venus is such a lovely world, with rich resources, that it's inevitable that Russia and America and Britain are going to fight over it in the future. But there's optimism at the end. And that was it. No more Pathfinders were launched, but there would be a sequel of sorts, this time set Under the Sea, with similar cast members playing different characters. Pathfinders, it's enjoyable, it's intelligent, it's exciting, and very wince-making at times. But it manages to avoid being jaw-achingly bad. Isn't that right, Hamlet? Many thanks to Michael Seeley for that. Yes, thank you, Michael. He's been a busy bee recently, he hasn't has. he? He has. He has his... He's got, like, loads of books out. Well, you've had two books from him arriving... In a week. In a week. In a week. So we better do the plug. Yes. First of all, there's a new edition of his book about Kit Peddler. Yes. Uh, Cyberman, The Quest for Peddler. Mm-hmm. And he's also got a new one. Yes. About the Nightmare Man. Yes. And uh, both of these are available from Phantom Publishing, aren't they? They are, yes. Now, this episode's been a sort of... Episode of Two Halves, hasn't it? it has. So we've had two things about ABC productions. Yes. But now we're going to go on to our Bernard Cribbins sort of section, aren't we? Yes, a tribute to Bernard Cribbins. So first of all, here's Warren to look at Dangerous Davies. I arrest you. I arrest you in the name of the Wombles. Oh, God almighty. Because Detective Dangerous Davis, <laughs> alias Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> Over the last decade, the cold case investigation has received somewhat of the glamour treatment on television with such series as New Tricks. But the reality of working on a cold case is it's usually wasted leads, long arduous hours trying to locate and then persuade witnesses to cast their mind back umpteen years and try and get them to remember what they'd rather not. So, as a police detective, imagine you're posted to the CID within the Metropolitan Police, looking forward to getting to grips with the cream of London's criminal fraternity, only to have all your dreams and expectations stamped on by being posted to Willesden in northwest London, and in the early 1980s. Willesden then was still seen as a quiet suburb of London, on the fringes of expanding its heritage with its cosmopolitan inhabitants 
just starting to flourish. The northwest frontier of London. Have you ever thought how many people around here are actually at war with each other? We've got two religious lots of Irish, hostile African tribes, Indians and Pakistanis, Jews and Arabs, and some of the original British. Magic life for a copper, excitement, glamour, and for me, the start of an incredible story. You see, Detective Constable Davis is his own worst enemy, an affable kind of soul who is often put upon and despised in equal measures by his colleagues and local criminals. Whenever there's a dirty job to be done, it's usually Dangerous Davies at the forefront. Dangerous is an interesting nickname. It implies he's a rough-and-ready character to be around, giving the impression of living on the edge and being dangerous to just to know, really. This, unfortunately, is far from the truth. Dangerous is so-called as he's more of a danger to himself and quite often his own worst enemy. So imagine his glee as he's assigned a job to track down and rattle the cage of a big international villain who's returned to the Costadale Willsden. The Dangerous, this is the big time. He's finally arrived, but he is about to take a journey which generates such revulsion within him that he places himself and his career onto a possible terminal pathway. For this is the story of Dangerous Davies, the last detective, played by the legendary entertainer Bernard Cribbins, and how the audience came to view Cribbins as a serious actor rather than a comic entertainer. face it, Cribbins has been on the screen since the year dot, and up to the 1980s he appeared on big screens since the 1950s. He hitched a ride for a while on the Carry On franchise, made comedic records, fought metallic childhood monsters, and even had his own comedy show. He attracted an audience aged 4 to 100. He spoke to different generations on the same level that they all understood. He was clean, decent, and a safe pair of hands part of Dangerous Davies would add another page to his bulging portfolio, that of serious actor. Not to say he's never played any serious roles. He would pop up in the mid-60s in a lot of straight acting roles. For example, one of them, She, from the uh, Hammer films. But on the whole, he was cuddly, light-hearted Bernard to the viewing public. So the performance he gives in The Last Detective is both poignant, moving, and sometimes very dark, as well as dangerous in an edgy way if you like. I traced down my copy of this DVD about 10 years ago as the original ITV broadcast had always sort of resonated within me. I loved Bernard in this because he wasn't doing a kid's drama or a whimsical comedy turn. I wanted to know there were people out there like Dangerous Davies keeping us safe and truly being the last detectives holding the thin blue line. This film creaks under its own cast list. Where else do you get Bernard Lee playing an old grizzled Cockney desk sergeant? Maureen Lipman playing an oversexed housewife obsessed with the colour green? And a spiteful senior officer played by Josh Ackland. Oh yes, and not forgetting the unemployed, library-hopping, sleuthing sidekick played by the legendary Bill Maynard. There's loads of others here, in fact. There's serious cameos from Philip Bond, Frank Windsor, Patsy Rollins, 
Pan St. Clair before she was pre-Senders and pre-Doctor Who Colin Baker, who's in possession of a young girl's knickers. So, relax as I recant the sad tale of a forgotten investigation into a murder of a 17-year-old girl and jumped into a shallow grave by those she thought wouldn't hurt her. We open with a police car screaming through the streets of Wilsdon to a dilapidated Edwardian house, which has been converted into a boarding house. A lot of those were in those days. One of the residents has gone berserk, and there's a waiting throng of police officers not really daring to go over the threshold. They are waiting the deployment of their secret weapon. The weapon decants from the police car. A middle-aged, slightly chubby, grey-haired detective clad in his Scotland Yard raincoat, which has seen better days. This is Dangerous Davies, the last detective. Oh, God, I said dangerous. Blimey, a procession of coppers. What are you lot waiting for, the band? Assessing the situation, dangerous. Waiting for me to get my head caved in again, more like. Where is he? Top of the stairs, stop room front. He's a tough bugger. He threatens to burn the house down. What about arms? He's got arms with fists on the end of them. Why won't he come out? I mean, what's he doing up there in the first place? Plastered as usual. He drinks a bottle of rum and a bottle of whiskey every day, and I've told him if he's not careful, he'll end up an alcoholic. Yeah, very likely. So donning bucket overhead, he bursts into the maniac's room to be promptly whacked over his head with a wardrobe door and add insult to injury he's followed by a procession of big booted coppers stepping across the door which is now covering davies to arrest their quarry just an average day for the accident prone davies america has dirty harry london has dangerous davies meanwhile back at the police station chief inspector yardbird the station commander has a visitor for the special branch yardbird is portrayed as a very bitter bitter person really yeah he has a very bitter streak with wonderful arrogance by the veteran actor Josh Ackland. Yardbird is a permanently angry character and a bitter man with regard to his officers as well. He regards them as all lazy and ambitious, and Yardbird is particularly mistrusting of Davies. But he has never excelled or shown any signs of progressing up the greasy pole. Ackland's character is wonderful, questioning other people's motives and he managed to portray him with a permanent chip on both shoulders to balance him out. The special branch officer says to him they require observation on a well-known career criminal, originally from the Wilsdon area, but he's recently been abroad. One Cecil Victor Ramscar. Don't forget that name, it will pop up a lot. Why don't you do it yourself? You've got enough people in your office, surely. It was thought better that someone local should do it, sir. Someone who knows his way around. It was thought better, was it? Yes, sir. And who thought it better? The assistant commissioner, sir. Yes, he's probably right. There are rumours that Ramscar has moved into the big league and has returned to carry out a political kidnapping. They need him bothered, unsubtly, by one of Yardbird's officers on a regular basis, preferably by somebody who's rather obvious and indiscreet. That evening, Davies visits his lockup where he keeps his car, former Second World War staff car. And taking up residence in this car is his old English sheepdog called Kitty, who is about as useful as a chocolate fire guard when it comes to protecting Davies. Cribbins has this wonderful warmth that goes to his audience, but also he has a bond with this dog. Um, the dog enjoys being around him. 
so much so that Kitty appears in the promotion for the film that he was doing. Uh, he did it later in the year, but was ambushed by Amy and Andrews, and it formed part of the This Is Your Life episode. Returning to the police stations, he's handed a thick file on Ramsgard by the station sergeant, as I said, played by Bernard Lee. Sadly, it's, it's clear that Lee is not in the best of health, and most of his bits are just take a whole morning to film, and usually done in one take, because he's absolutely still pitch perfect as that wonderful actor that we know him to be. I'm here, Mary Draycott. Two teens. Minor injuries. They're in dangers. St Mary's Hospital, not detained. That's your lot. Is the old man upstairs? He's gone home. Hmm? Oh, I've got something for you. Came up from criminal records this afternoon. Ramscar, that's all Victor. Yeah, I've heard what you do read through. It seems a more of a God, it's thicker than my dog. Is there anything new on the Larson case at the Catholic Church? No, nothing. Why don't you let him on with the Bernard confession books? Well, don't ask me. Maybe Father Harvey did it for the insurance. Alas, this would prove to be Lee's final role, and he would succumb to stomach cancer in January 1981. He was was due to appear as M in the James Bond film for Your Eyes Only, but sadly passed away before the filming got started. Taking the file into an office, Dangerous reads through it and is drawn to the case of a missing teenager from way back in August 1965, one Celia Mary Norris. I don't know why it caught my eye, but it was a statement Ramsgar made about a 17-year-old girl, Celia Norris, missing, believed dead. He gave his movements for the evening of July 23rd, 1965, the day she vanished. He knew Celia Norris because her father was a business associate, but he hadn't spoken to her for weeks. His statement had been checked and accepted by the police 15 years ago. So why didn't I accept it? cross-checks the files of Celia Norris held in the station's records department and he, as he goes through he finds a load of inconsistencies and holes, an investigation that was quite frankly slapdash and closed without any follow-up to any leads that may have occurred. Dangerous is drawn more and more into that cold case, if you like, than his task at hand. Because of the esteem that Cribbins is held in by the British public, he has the most genuine persona, if you like, to pull off the portrayal of a man seeking the truth and bringing to the end a torment that a family's been suffering since 1965. As dangerous, he is the honesty and integrity that manifests itself in a man seeking recompense for the death, the untimely death of a girl so young and innocent. That night, Marden himself um, decided they're going to scope out the last known location of Celia Norris, and it takes them down to the canal, where they meet the local priest who is quite regularly fishing. He never catches anything, he just likes to hang around dark canals. They discuss the murder with him, and the priest quite quietly says to Dangerous, cold ashes, not worth raking over there, Dangerous, should let sleeping dogs lie. The following day, Dangerous visits Celia's mum, played by the chain-smoking EastEnders legend Pam St. Clement. Now, she has no confidence in the police, and quite rightly so. She's not heard anything since 1965, so she's totally lost any confidence in what Dangerous is going to tell her, and quite frankly tells him, after a cup of tea of course, to sling his hook. Mrs Norris? That's right, what do you want? I wonder if I could just... Have a word with you, if you can, about your daughter. Josie? What's Josie done? No, not Josie. Celia. 
Just as dangerous as leaving, her other daughter, Josie, who's now in her early 20s, rocks up at the house on her moped. She, however, has more confidence in Dangerous and explains her mum was so badly let down by the police that there's little love loss there. Also, her dad is an associate of Ramsgard, so police are most definitely persona non gratis in that household. We find out that Celia's body has never been found, but some of her clothes were found in a public lavatory. Everything except her underpants and her bicycle. You see, the night Celia went missing, she was last seen at the youth club where she had been with the other girls and her on-off boyfriend, William Lind. Lind was questioned at the time by the police and was discounted from their inquiries. As too was the young man who ran the youth club, one Dave Boot. However, we will find out more about these characters later on. Now, Cribbins is the master of building up audiences' emotions. As the storyline becomes more and more darker, to balance it out with the the lighter moment, shall we say, he engages the viewer on a journey to enjoy some of the more comic aspects of Dangerous Davis's life. And Cribbins, with his comedy aspect, excels. It's never more highlighted by the best comedy set piece within the drama itself. Dangerous's encounter with the highly oversexed Mrs. Lind, played by the wonderful Maureen Lipman. I've never, I've never seen a green cat before. <laughs> Very pricey to get her dyed. Mind you, makes a talking point at dinner parties. Yeah. Well, I suppose I'd better tell you why I'm here. Well, I know I haven't been wicked. We're not in a way the police will be interested in anyway. To that evening, Dangerous takes Mrs Lynch to the pub where she insists on only drinking creme de menthe all evening. During her drunken state, she explains that the teenage girls were obsessed by the youth club leaver, Dave Boot. So much so, the girls were, shall we say, deflowered by Boot. Some in the rec room, some in the cupboard, or in Mrs Lynn's case, on the trampoline. Anyway, always being the gentleman he is, Dangerous escorts Mrs. Lind back to her flat and she slips into the conversation that her husband is away. Once they step into the lift and the doors close, Lind opens her coat and shoves Dangerous's head between her ample chesticles. Uh, listen, you press the button, do you? I want you. What? No. I want you. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not free. I'm promising you know. Don't you lie. I'm a smart. I'm not good enough for you, oh, eh? Yes, they're, they're super real. They're really super. I can't. Yes, they're Please put them away. Escaping with his integrity intact, Dangerous receives a cryptic note telling him to be by the canal bank at midnight to find out who killed Celia Norris. The wonderful elements of this TV film is the almost gumshoe commentary provided by Crimmins as Dangerous throughout all seamlessly wrapped up in a no-nonsense, anticlimactic style of a, a cheap penny dreadful, but uttered by those beautiful, warm tones of Cribbins himself. Now, the note that Dangerous has got is clearly a fake, and some of Ramsgar's heavies throw a dustbin over his head and propel him into the canal, only to be saved by the fishing priest. Once again, Dangerous is released from hospital after being dried out in the from his little flaunt in the canal yes this becomes an average day for davis 
hospitalisation. And we'll see throughout the film it gets um, more and more extreme. So after the ramblings from Mrs Lint, he is out on the hunt for Dave Boot. Dangerous is now out for blood. Boot's blood. He is appalled by him, taking advantage of the young teens at the youth club. Dangerous is on a mission and he manages to track down Boot, following him onto a tube train. Boot takes exception to Dangerous's method of intimidation and stays on the train to the end of the line and where everyone else gets off. Boot tries to leave, but Dangerous has other ideas. You see, during the journey, Boot has bragged and baited Dangerous about the deflowering of the young girls, and this has enraged him even more. As a viewer, you your blood's boiling, but you're thinking, this is Bernard Cribbins, he's not going to be nasty, he's not going to duff up a suspect. Boot is a sick, depraved individual, to which you have no sympathy. And when he does get a kicking from Dangerous, oh yeah, he does, Bernard does give him a kicking, you feel no ill towards Bernard for doing it. Leaving you with her bloomers. Something to remember her by. That's all. You can make what you like out of it. All those years ago. And you can still remember how hard she kicked you. All because of some little thing you wanted her to do. You bloody hypocrite. You're only doing this to me because you never had one in your bloody life. And this is the rub. Two men trapped on a tube carriage in a dark tunnel with no one else. The tensions have reached boiling point. And this is where Cribbins comes out total left field. The anger and the violence that have been building up within his character, he just displays it in a shocking and guttural way. This is a real eye-opener for fans of Cribbins, if you like. This is not what you expect from Cuddly Bernard. So we draw breath, but totally in keeping with the emotional boiling point that is now overflowing, Cribbins is like a man out of control, grabbing hold of Boot and throwing him the length of the carriage twice and threatening to stamp on him until he causes him some real damage. No more Mr Nice Guy. The story has now entered a phase of true darkness. Dangerous, with nothing to lose, is going rogue because some piece of rubbish has abused a teenage girl and possibly could have murdered and dumped her body in goodness knows where. Convinced that Boot is no more than a sick pervert, he carries on with his investigation, whilst trying to locate Ramsgard at the same time. A list of officers who were on duty that night, especially the ones that were on patrol near the canal, he narrows it down to two officers, one named Fred Fennell and another who's moved to Australia. He has real trouble in finding Fennel. In fact, Fennel himself has been committed to the local mental hospital. And that's where Dangerous has to visit to meet up with former Z-Car star Frank Windsor. Fennel, played by Windsor, explains on the night of Celia's disappearance he was on duty, but he disappeared to have a drink with a CID. Too drunk to drive the police van, he staggers back to his girlfriend's houseboat to sober up. En route, he finds Celia's bicycle just propped up against the wall and he drops this off at his girlfriend's house, where it has now stayed for over 15 years. Davis collects the bike and takes it back to his lockout. The following day, he reports back to the station and meets Mr Lind. That's William Lind. Yes, husband of the woman who tried to rape him in the lift. In 1965, Lind 
was Celia's boyfriend. He's played by future Doctor Who, Colin Baker. Lind nervously hands over Celia's underwear, saying he's kept this for over 15 years because it was stuffed in his saddlebag on his bicycle the night she went missing. He presumes somebody was just trying to wind him up about it. Through further questioning, he's totally ruled out by Dangerous as being a suspect. So now Dangerous has Celia's bike and her underwear, but the body, or the whereabouts of her body, is still unknown. He updates Josie as to what he's found out so far and returns to his lockup, where he's set upon by Ramsgard's heavies and heavily hospitalised. This time he's wheeled in with Josie and Celia's dad, who is in a far more serious condition than he is. The gloves are off now and it's clear that Ramsgard wants Dangerous and Norris either incapacitated or worse. Josie comes and visits Dangerous in the hospital after she's visited her father and is thanking him for all that he's doing for the family. The relationship between Josie and Dangerous is very much the relationship the audience has with Cribbins himself. She sees him as a caring, funny, honest relation she's never had. Somebody she can trust and confide in. Somebody who can be there when the world is deserting her. Dangerous is now in a state of mummification, or his hands and his head are bandaged. But he steals carry-ons, discharging his investigation. He's not going to let go of it. He is going to track down and find the killer. If he can't find the killer, he's going to find Celia's body so they can give her a proper funeral. He locates more clues when visiting Josie at her home. And whilst there, they're both called to the hospital and informed her father has died of a heart attack brought on by Ramsgard's sanctioned attack. So this is bringing big questions. Is it Ramsgard? Has Dangerous got too close to the truth? She tells him before her father died, she t- she, he informed her that Ramsgard was in a farm in Uxbridge. Unbeknown to Dangerous, Ramsgard has already carried out his threat to kidnap a, a very influential politician, and he's holding him in this barn in Uxbridge. So when Dangerous carries out the most heroic gesture so far by kicking in the farm door and going in, he is basically pinned to the ground and given a shoeing. His life, or rather his bacon, is saved by the cavalry arriving. Now wheelchair-bound with both legs broken and in casts and his arm in a plaster, he's visited by Mott, who's managed to track down an old man who witnessed Celia Norris on the canal bank. This old man is played by the irrepressible Sidney Bromley. And he's always good for a turn playing dotty old men, isn't he? It's quite a big day for him. Oh, hello. Hello. I'm, uh, I'm Charlie Hotness. I'm 101. I'm very glad to meet you, sir. Well, sit down. Sit down. I've shrunk a bit. Yeah, they won't have to dig much earth out for me, will they? Yeah, well, I like my morning milk with a little drop in it. I'm supposed to be deaf. I'm not really deaf. I only pretend I'm deaf. Yeah, otherwise he keeps blabbering on all day. Off camera, he tells Dangerous exactly what he saw that night. With this information, Dangerous suspects where Celia is buried. He locates underneath a greenhouse um, a metal gate. He opens it up and in the cabin below are the last remains of Celia Norris. Never torch. Oh. Mm-hmm.
Dangerous is called back to the mental hospital where Fennel has recovered enough to be calm and coherent. He explains to Dangerous that his colleague, that's the guy who moved to Australia, covered for him whilst he was on duty and going to the party. Fennel's colleague is so shocked by what he saw, he he just keeps quiet for the, the rest of his career. Instead, he records everything in a written statement and sends it to Fennel recorded post, only to be opened in the light of his death or the discovery of Celia's body. This leads the audience to believe that the other officer that was on duty with Fennel that night had killed her. But that definitely wasn't the real story. Unable to open the letter containing this statement, as it would invalidate its genuine evidential purposes, Fennel explained that his colleague had made a photostat copy of its contents. And this is what it said. Whilst patrolling down by the canal side, that of the location where Celia was last seen, I came across a dishevelled individual in police uniform. It was the sergeant. He had scratches to his face. He was pale. He was sweating. Sergeant Yardbird was not his usual self. So Yardbird was Celia's killer. Poor, scared and lonely Celia. Murdered by the very person who pledged to protect the vulnerable. The following day, a presentation was taking place at the police station. This was all due to Dangerous's gallant actions in detaining Ramsgard and his detection of Josie's father's murderer. He's visited by a superintendent who asks Yardbird to present Dangerous with his trophy. The two glare at each other, neither one of them speaking. But Yardbird is clearly aware the game is up. Davies has clearly outwitted the murderous fiend. He's a broken man. He leans forward and asks Yardbird to come and join him with the superintendent as he'd like to talk to him about something. The cold case of Celia Norris. Yardbird just stares forward, a broken man. Sir, do you think I might have a word with you in private? It's about Celia Norris. Bernard Cribbins manages to take us on a journey to some of the darkest places of the human psyche. What manifests itself as an orgy of violence in which an innocent is killed. To bizarre parts of the um, Maureen Lipman's attempted rape in the lift of of dan- dangerous. He's out of control dog that doesn't protect him at any time when any of the heavies come to beat seven bells out of him. But the overriding thing that I take away from this is there is so much more to Bernard Cribbins than singing a funny song or doing a comedy skit. He had depths that we could only hope for as human beings. He had a way of just reaching out to everybody. He made you safe watching this. Even though it's dark, it's bleak. You felt safe in the hands of his character because you believed in Bernard. And that's not a bad thing. Bernard Cribbins, when he passed, took a lot with him from inside of us. But up here, in the head and in the heart, he's still there. We can see him. He makes us what we are today. And he makes us smile. Whatever he's doing, whether he's Dangerous Davies, whether he's the voice of the Wombles, 
or sitting down one quiet afternoon just telling us a story on Jack and Nori. Thank you, Bernard. We'll miss you. Many thanks to Warren for that. Yes, thank you, Warren. Warren's own show, The Cinematic Sausage, uh, recently did a tribute to Bernard Crubins as well. He did, yes. And he's also teamed up with Martin to do a, re- a review of Hell Drivers. Yes. So seek that out. Yes. But now, here's our own tribute to Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> start work. And here's great uncle Bulgaria. But there's someone missing. Hmm? Hey. Oh, don't make everybody cry. Well, Bernard Cribbins always does on Doctor Who, so I, I thought <laughs> I'd get my own back. <laughs> but yeah, there is someone missing now in uh, Wimbledon Common. Yes. And is the wombles the first thing you think of when you think of bernard cribbins i think it is yeah that's in my head bernard cribbins is the voice of the wombles mm. and jack and Ori. yeah and they were part of my childhood yeah i mean he's up there isn't he with all those voices yeah. from your childhood yeah. like sort of oliver postgate yeah. and eric thompson and, and brian, brian Kent, and, yeah. and all of those yeah and it's it's amazing how much they stick in your head because mm. you can just replay his Wombles voice yeah. you know without even watching an episode no, can't you because no. it always makes me think of it and I know it's it's filmed before but the bit in Dalek Invasion Earth when he he opens the door and falls out yeah. and he does that cry he sounds like Orinoco but obviously the Orinoco voice comes after that yeah but it's almost like you know they've just chucked Orinoco out of the door <laughs> <laughs> like that um, <laughs> thank you for that but yeah, obviously the the Dalek films I do remember um, mm. from being shown in the seventies. Yes, and I think out of the two films, I prefer Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that Cribbins is not playing Ian. No. Yeah, you've had Roy Castle as Ian. Yes. A very different Ian to what was on the on the telly. Yes. Uh, but Bumblier. yeah. Yeah. But but throw throw in a police officer in yeah. the form of Bernard Cribbins, mm-hmm. and he does get a fair bit to do with that he film, does. doesn't he? Yeah, I mean he's a slightly rubbish police officer, isn't he? At the start, it's only really at the end when uh, Doctor Who manages to get it back just before. Yeah, and we we we're not going to the whole mechanics of that scene because how it, how it works. Because yeah, yeah, when yeah. Doctor Who returns him to that time, yeah. what's happened to his original yeah, self? self. Who, oh, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that that whole sequence with him eating his Smarties as well, yes. with with the Robo Man with the wonky yeah. 
goggles on. Yeah. I vaguely remember that being shown on Tomorrow's World or something. I think it was something about, like, in the future we'll all eat pills or Mm. something like that. (laughs) I I know that I I definitely saw the film before I saw the television series because I remember being really disappointed at the absolutely rubbishness of the Robermen of the of the TV series compared to those of the film. Okay, that's interesting. So. Yeah. I mean, also, I would have seen him in the Carry On film, so that would be Carry On Jack and yes. Carry On Spying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's Jack and Ori as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was, he's that sort of reassuring voice that's reading you a story. And I've been reading his autobiography, and he says that in that, that the way that he did that was he'd sit himself out in the chair mm. and look at the camera, and he'd imagine that at home there's one child yeah. watching. And that's who he was talking to. He was talking to that one child watching, which is why it really works. Because mm. he's, 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 it's like he's just talking to you, which he is. Yeah. So, so is it Arabelle? And Mortimer, you, um, you think of? Or? Probably. I mean, he did quite a few, didn't he? But he did over a hundred, yeah, I think. I think he did the most yeah. of any any person. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't really remember him what he read. Yeah. But yeah, it probably was Arabelle and Mortimer. I mean, there's there's wind in the willows. Uh, yeah, there, there's a, there's a number of Mortimer ones because mm. we watched a Mortimer one. It was something about a we dinosaur did. in a lock or something, yes. wasn't it? Yes, yes. It's um, they go on holiday in a in a horse drawn um, caravan. Yeah, which is really slow. Yeah. So. And he does actually read James and the Giant Peach oh, in 1968. Okay. Yeah. Because again, Jack and Ori is is really missing, isn't it? it? Is. So much of yeah. it yeah. has gone. Um, we'll talk about James and the Giant Peach a bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do remember his his version of The Hobbit from 79. Yes. Do, do you remember that? Or no. is that just a bit before your That's time? That's a little bit before my time. When did you first read The Hobbit then? Um, I first read The Hobbit. I, know, I don't know if I read it. For, well, I must have read it first and then because I, I went mm. to see a stage show at the local theatre. Yeah. Which coincidentally... Bernard Cribbers. He didn't act at that particular theatre, mm. but he, he had he did a rep season or two at the older version of the Queen's Theatre in Hornchurch, right. which is not the one that I went to when I was when I was growing up because they they had a new purpose-built building. Um, but yeah, they did a version of The Hobbit, and I think I must have read the book, and I know um, I think I must have read it by about 1984, 85, whenever threads is on. Mm. Because they showed us threads at school. Yeah. And my English teacher, who was quite sympathetic to me, obviously thought that I was not suited to watch threads. I'd never watched threads to this day. So instead of doing a thing about threads, he let me do a thing on The Hobbit. Okay. So. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether the Jack and Ori version is my first encounter with The Hobbit, or I know we did it at school, but I can't work out what year mm. we did. So it's possible that Cribbins is my sort of first encounter with yeah. with Bilbo Baggins. Mm-hmm. And he is utterly perfect, he's, isn't he's he? He's utterly perfect. He's absolutely... that that Because obviously you've got four readers, haven't you, for mm. that, which is unusual for a Jack and Ori because it's the 100th episode, isn't it? Uh, 3,000. 3,000 episodes, sorry. Yeah. yeah, gosh, yeah, of course it wouldn't be. Um, I think it's like 100 story. Um, but yeah, so you've got 
Bernard Cribbins, Jan Francis, David Wood and Morris Denham, who is utterly wonderful as Gandalf and does faraway acting. Oh yeah, the, the bit where Gandalf buggers off yeah. and, and you've got Morris Denham. You thought he'd be at the other end of the studio. No, it's, it's really quite a small studio, Yeah, it's it? a tiny studio, yeah. but there's Morris Denham going, Keep on the path, be good! <laughs> and, and all this. I mean, Morris Denham gets to do a load. Yes. But, but yeah, Cribbins, he, he sat there and he's what's he wearing it's a sort of jacket and cravatty thing yes, isn't it yes. so they've dressed they've dressed him up a bit hobbity haven't yes, they a little bit yeah and his yeah. hair's right for it, it as well because yeah. yeah. with, with his with his curly hair yes but he, he just he just is right he that's, is. that's the thing yes had peter jackson made the hobbit films 30 years before he did Cribbins should have been it would have yeah. been would have been bill by baggins i mean again it's a great shame that that's not available on a dvd yes. there is a cd release there is. and i would yeah. advise everybody to get it because yes. yes. I've, I've got it in the car yes. many a time um when you've picked me up from work i've got it in the car and you are listening to the hobbit yet yeah. again and it's at the same point it's weird i always seem to get in the car at the same point which is normally means tends to be the barrels doesn't yeah. it so. Don't forget, you also got the Hobbit free um, with the ZX Spectrum oh, the game. video game. Yeah. You bought the video game. And you yeah. got the book with it as well. Oh, okay, crumbs. So uh, imagine getting is that the hardback version. No, it's paperback. Okay. I've probably got it over there right, actually. Okay. Uh, but ima- imagine getting Hobbit. free books with video games these it was days. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, obviously, there's his good old daisies. Yes. Good old daisies. Is that the plural? No. Um, we, we saw one from 1975 where we nearly went arse over tit down the stairs, yeah, didn't we? only three stairs yeah. as well. How can he cock up going down know. some stairs? Wasn't paying attention. Or it's all, all part of the But as, as we said in the last episode, he sometimes does stuff with Barry Cryer, doesn't he? Yeah. But again, there's a few good old days knocking around. Yeah. I don't know whether they're still on iPlayer or not, mm-hmm. but certainly BBC4 showed them. So yes. they're not that hard to find, no. are they? Yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar with some, some of his stuff. Like, apparently he was in uh, about a dozen episodes of Coronation Street. He was. That's quite yeah. recent. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you know, his recent Doctor Who stuff. Yes. But as you said, you, you've dug out his autobiography. Yes. Well, um, I, I dug it. I already had it. Oh, you, you did have it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you managed to get hold of, what's it? Um cribbins which is his yeah you make it sound really hard i just bought it from, you, you from, just bought like, it off the internet yeah it bought it off the internet so <laughs> but that that's his sort of comedy it's his one man well, it's not his one man it's his it's sort of comedy series from the late, from, late 60s from yeah um what about the railway children i have though? never seen the railway i've children. never seen i don't think i've no, ever seen the, the only bit children. of the railway children i've ever seen is the bit at the end with ian cuthbertson which despite the fact i've never seen it makes me cry every time what about Mr. Hutchinson in Forty Terrors? Um, Do you know yeah, that? Yep. Yeah. I, I had that. I think you've seen. You've seen I had that, that on yeah. LP. All right, so you know. Off I, my heart. I had the album of oh, that, gosh. and so so all of his lines are again embedded in my head. Mm. You know, is I mean, it possible for me to reserve the BBC Two channel for the duration of this televisual feast? Why don't you talk properly? It's a fact as well. He's in Frenzy. What's Frenzy? Then? Frenzy's an Alfred Hitchcock film about a serial killer. Okay. So, and he's apparently a not very nice character in there. Right. I don't, again, I don't, so, I don't. And also, don't quite know. recently, within the sort of last ten years or so, he was in New Tricks. Yeah. And he played a, a bent ex police, an yeah. ex bent policeman. I don't know how you say that. That's not right. Either way, but yeah. So, you know, it's. Oh, I meant to ask you, who's your favourite Womble? 
Oh, um, Orinoco. Why Orinoco? Because he looks a bit like the fourth doctor. <laughs> he's got a hat and a he's scarf. He's got a hat and a scarf. And he's bumbly. <laughs> yeah. And my, lazy. I think my favourite Womble uh, is Tobamori in the same way that my favourite member of original Star Trek is Scotty. Because he's an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they actually do useful stuff. <laughs> I've never drunk Tobamori whiskey, though. I, I must don't. get round to that yeah. one day. Uh <laughs> Space 1999 then oh, Brian the gosh, Brain yes, That was an experience He's the voice of the computer And he also gets to appear Robot-y as, thing isn't it yeah, yeah It's a robot thing Isn't inside the robot TV's Michael Charvel Apparently Martin Apparently so yes But but yeah um, Cribbins is the voice And he, he's The voice is Because he was programmed by What was it the His Captain creator the Captain Michael yeah. And he does appear Yeah in, in, as himself, sort of zombie himself version. but he's doing a load of whistling and woohoo yeah, and yeah. It's, it's it's a very it's a very odd part isn't it it is it, it, is. it is a robot stroke computer but yes. it's got a lot of personality it has got a lot of personality so again yes. he's just putting it all in the voice yeah. isn't he yeah. um, it's not not necessarily the best episode of space no. 1999 no um but i, th- I think cribbins does you know make it interesting he does he? Yeah. yes so James and the Giant Peach. Yes. I vaguely remember it. I have never, far never too seen early for you. Before, no, no. And I showed it to you recently. You did. Yeah. And he's he's the centipede, yes. and he's a very good centipede, very good and he gets centipede. to sing sing a song or yes. two. Yeah. It's an old costume, isn't it? It is because he's got all these sort of legs with boots on, isn't he? Mm. But then obviously he's got his feet he's, at the bo- his own face. But he's got his, his his centipede body drags behind. Yeah. But his human body is a sort of up. Well, it's upright. Isn't Obviously, it? it's upright. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So he's a, he's a sort of human centipede, isn't yeah. it? It's very weird. Yeah. Um, and. Obviously, that's how they had to do it in, in those days. They're not doing like CGI or puppetry or anything like no. that. So you have to jam these actors into, into the costume. Like it's like a sort of duvet, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, it's a, it's very. It's, it's it's almost like a version, the up. early version of yeah. the Wirren, isn't it? Yeah. But with Adam Crawl going around. Yeah, because there is that. There are a couple of shots of Wirren with feet sticking out the bottom if yeah. you if you go searching. Because you've also got um, is it. Um, Patty Coombs. Pat Coombs, yeah. Uh, as the human the, the stroke spider. spider. Yeah. And Hugh Lloyd as the, the human stroke worm. Worm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, you, you got a bit confused because there, there is a silkworm silk as well worm, yeah, in there. Yeah. But that's that's played by a lady. Um, yeah. No, no. The the glow worm is Joe Kendall. Yeah. Christopher Owen is the silkworm. Okay. Oh, and Hugh oh, Lloyd is the earthworm. Earth yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know you've got two worms, but at no point does Hugh Lloyd's um, sort of human worm emit any silk. Right. So okay. you, you've got to be careful about that's that. Good, yeah. Um, but yeah, Thorley Waters is the grasshopper and yes. Arthur Hewlett as old man. Who is bonkers. <laughs> and he's really scary. He is. He's all cackly and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's quite scary. Yeah. Uh, music by Peter Howell, no less. Oh, okay. And adapted by Trevor Preston. Mm. So, yeah. Do you think it's the better than the the film? Or I've not, not you... seen the film. Yeah. I'm. I, I, there's so much I haven't seen. Yeah. But I know Joanna Lundy's in the film. Yeah, I'm but I, I'm Lundy's. very fond of that as a production. Mm. I mean, it, it is cheap as chips, but but it's very well done. And, and mm. yeah, the, the songs do get in your head. And yes. Again, I'm not aware of any official release, but it no. is knocking about on the mm. on the internet. If you. Look, Dangerous Dave is, of course, Warren has covered. Yes. I haven't got round to seeing it yet. No. No. Uh, but 
do you know Dangerous Davies as the, the Peter Davison version? Yes, I've seen yeah. the Peter Davison version of Dangerous Davies. Yeah. yeah. Now you you've got Coffee as well, isn't haven't you? Yes. Which is a spin-off from Shillingbury Tales. Yes. Which you've also got. I should object to Cuffy because he's playing a sort of basically a simple country man, isn't yes, he? Yes, in all senses. And of the being words. a being a country man, I yeah. object to the the idea that that people are automatically a bit dim. Yeah, he's got some amazing trousers in yeah. the second episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cuffy and a holiday, and Very he, he knocks Jack Douglas off a. A, 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 ladder. a ladder doesn't yeah. it and they end up in sort of in hospital yeah and it's almost like they're trying to do a sort of laurel and hardy where, yeah. where stan visits yeah. ollie in hospital yeah. and eats all these grapes and yeah they didn't take but nuts and, and hard-boiled, hard-boiled eggs, eggs and nuts yeah. yeah that's right yeah where's all gummage i'd forgotten yeah. his jolly jack appearance yes. as well because uh, he's a what is he? He's a sort of ship. He's the ship's sort of figurehead, isn't he? So he's, he's, he's not that dissimilar to Saucy Nancy. Yeah. but he's the male version. But he's it, outside he? the chip shop. Yes. And inevitably, um, yeah. he causes <laughs> key and Wurzel calls chaos. Yeah, Aunt yeah. Sally's in that one as well. Yeah. And it's mostly sort of eating and throwing chips at each other, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I do like that episode because I always like chip shops. So. Yes. They, 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 Didn't make me want fish and chips. Yeah. Did we get? Did no. we get it or not? No, not I don't end. know. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't can't remember. Uh, yeah, there, there's appearances in Noel's house party. I don't remember him being no. in, in that at all. But as Victor the vicar. Yes. <laughs> Would you believe? <laughs> um, but uh, there's old Jack, Jack's boat as well. You showed yes. me one. I don't think I'd ever yeah. seen one. No. no. Um, basically, that's a sort of Jack and Ori type thing where yeah. he's he's yeah. he's telling you tales, isn't mm-hmm. he? Uh, how true these tales are is not entirely no. clear. There was more outside filming in that than I thought, yeah. uh, based on the one that you showed me. Because who's who's Captain Periwinkle in it's, that? It's uh, Don Gillo. Who's, who's, who's Donna's, Donna's boyfriend, boyfriend, Lance. Fiance from yeah. Runaway Bride, the one that, that gives her to the spider. Yeah. The, the one we watched was a quest for some black pepper from yeah. the Spice Lands. Yeah, for his cheese and tomato his sandwich. His cheese and tomato sandwich didn't have no black yeah. pepper on it. You don't like black I pepper, I don't like do black pepper. I can taste black pepper in anything immediately. I taste it. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But, yeah, let, let's get on to his Doctor Who then, shall yes. we? And yes. uh, we, we did re-watch... Quite a few of them. Most of his stuff. Yeah. Apart from the Sontaran episodes, because you said they weren't really important. He doesn't, doesn't get a huge amount to do in those. He gets locked in a car. He gets locked in a car. But his partners in crime stuff, there's only a couple of scenes in that as yeah. well. But he makes the most of the he, scenes he, he's given. Yeah, he really yeah. makes an effort. Obviously, he'd been in Voyage of the Dam earlier, yeah. but that, that, that scene with the telescope. Yes. Um, and... You were wincing that little bit. I, I, I was wondering how he was getting um, a, a fix on, on the TARDIS with, with the telescope and, and all, all that. And I don't think his view of Venus is necessarily mm. what he was seeing mm. um, p- with with that thing. Uh, but, yeah, he's just so... Is, is charming the word? or Yeah, I think I think what it is is the fact that he, obviously he's playing... Um, Donna's granddad mm. and having to come in and having to come in because of of, of um, various things that had happened they they lost Harold Howard Atwood mm. Atfield sorry um, because he he was very ill yeah so they they bring Cribbins in yeah and I think possibly it's the best thing they ever do for that series yeah because he now suddenly becomes the nation's granddad yeah doesn't he yeah you know I think a lot of Doctor Who young Doctor Who fans that are just are watching with um 
you know, just watching from New Doctor Who, suddenly discover Bernard Cribbins. And if that makes them go back and find other stuff he's done, then, you know, that's probably going to bring them a lot of pleasure. Yeah. And I think one of his best bits is in Turn Left, isn't it? Yeah, it's that's a stunning performance. Yeah. It really so much is, is unsaid, yeah, it's but just, you can it's see all it in his face, in his eyes. Yeah, the fact that he seems to be able to cry at the at the, at the you know, yeah. really easily. Yeah, because he's you know when they take away um, the um, Italian Rocco character away and on the back of the van, and nothing is actually said. That you actually know what's going to happen because um, they're taking him to a labour camp. But it's all in Cribbins' face. Yeah. You know, it's you don't need to overstate it. So but yeah, it's 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 just it's a really stunning piece of acting mm. from, from Cribbins, from everybody in that that um story. Yeah. And then of course is teaming up with with Tennant in the end of time. Yes. Finally getting his name in the credits. In the credits. Yeah. Long he gets, deserved. He gets the yeah. and, which and is the Bernard most Cribbins. important bit, isn't yeah. it? So And again, some great scenes in the cafe, you know. Yeah. Um, tenant, I'm going to die. Yeah, you know, and uh, also the with the gun as well on the yes. spaceship as well. Yeah, um, you know, take the gun, and again, his own background influences the character. The yes, with the paratrooper yeah. um, stuff because you said you'd read read his book, and does yes. he talk about that? He talks a bit about it because he was in Palestine um, yeah. in I think it was in 1948, and because there, there was some sort of handover then. I, I don't really know the history of it. Um, and, yeah, I don't know if he was actually in the middle of a, middle of a mm. sort of um, fight, a fire fight, but I know that, you know, he served yeah. at that time. And he's and... got his little badge on his hat. Yes. He? Yeah. yes. Um, but, yeah, and I I don't know. Is he going to actually be in the 60th? He, there, are, there are... I have seen pictures of him... Mm. But it's mostly him. I don't think it's going to be a huge part because it's mostly him being yeah. pushed around in a wheelchair by various members of the cast. Yeah. Well, mostly David Turner and Catherine Tote. So I think it's more of a cameo. But it will be a nice tribute yeah. to him. Just just something to look forward to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it, I mean, it's again, it's an astonishing career. And I was a bit nervous about doing this piece because I mm. thought, you know... <sighs> so much we've got to cover mm. and are we even going to get anywhere doing justice because uh, again I mean that is, he's in the Avengers he's in yeah. Armchair Theatre it's just all this good stuff yeah. I mean some of which is probably sitting over there it in the pile is. that yeah. we just haven't got round to no. haven't got round to watching, watching yet yeah. and mm. again we took our time with this piece because mm. we wanted to to make sure we did him justice to see as much as, as yeah. much as we could but again with Cribbins there's always more to see isn't oh, there yeah yeah, yeah. So, so, but I, I just think he, you know, he's just, he's just, we want, we wanted to do this right. So. Yes, because he means a lot to, to so many people, to so yeah. many people, and to our generation in particular because of all those things he did uh, when we were children. Yeah, um, I mean, particularly Jack and Ari. Like, there's a story in his book that he he got a taxi and and the, the taxi driver asked him what he was doing. And I think he was doing some Jack and Ori, and he said, um, and the driver said, oh, yeah, that's that's inspired me to learn to read. Yeah. So. Right. Oh, wow. You know, for the fact that it's not only inspiring children, it was inspiring adults as well to, to 
maybe to do something they've not done before. Mm. So, you know, he's yeah. he means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. And I know it was like it was a huge shock when he when he did pass away, even though, you know, he was he was sort of um, ninety three. So but, you know, it's losing part of your childhood, isn't yeah. it? But yeah, certainly seek out some of the sort of lesser known cribbing stuff if you can and i just say just look up the the hobbit on jack and ori that, yeah. that's the first yeah. first place to go i'd he, say because he's front and center through is. the whole of that yeah and they do the hobbit in 10 15 minute episodes yes. not three films yeah <laughs> three films is a bit long for that what what is one book yeah and they just they just get it so right they do. don't they yeah yeah and yeah. and cribbins is you know the main reason they get it right, it is. isn't it? He so. is the perfect Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. So there we go. There you go. So there's there's Bernard Cribbins. Yes. And that's the end of episode sixty-three of Round the Archive. It is. Yeah. So thank you to everyone who's been involved. Thank mm. you to everyone who contributed. Yes. Thank you to everyone who's listened. Yes. Do spread the word because yes. we're always grateful for publicity. Yes, and, and we we hope you've enjoyed it. We we do, and uh, I guess we'll see you around for. Episode 64. Yes. Again, not quite sure when that will be. Yes, probably not this rest of this Maybe year. Maybe not this year, but so, you never know. Yes. But look out for us in the new year, I guess, yes. is the easiest thing to do. So mm-hmm. thank you to one and all again, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 63 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Frobridge, Martin Holmes, Michael Seeley and Warren Cummings. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Red Cap, The Patrol, was by Troy Kennedy Martin. And the producer was John Bryce. Many thanks to Martin for that. Yes, thank you, Martin. Very interesting. Martin show vision, 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 vision. <laughs> Do that again. Yeah. We may see a creature with 49 heads who lives in the desolate snow. And whenever he catches a cold which he dreads, he has 49 noses to blow. We may see the venomous pig-spotted scrunch who can chew up a man with one bite. It likes to eat five of them roasted for lunch and 18 for its supper at night. Like a new Angonocerous, surely we'll see that enormous, gnorable gnat whose sting when it stings you goes in at the knee and comes out through the top of your hat. 
We may even get lost and be frozen by frost. We may die in an earthquake or tremor. Or nastier still, we may even be tossed on the horns of a furious dilemma. But who cares? Let's go, let's go, let's go.